So Galatians 3, 1 to 14, hear, hear the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's start with a little quiz about state mottos. Some of these are official and some of them are unofficial. We'll start with an easy one. Florida is the sunshine state, although we actually don't have as much sunshine as some of the southwestern states, but we have a lot of sunshine. Uh, how about Georgia? It's the peach state. Okay, South Carolina? Palmetto State. North Carolina? Tar Heel State. Tar Heel State. Right, okay, the Tar Heel State. How about Alabama? The Yellow Hammer State. Yeah, I don't think they make a big deal of that one. Mississippi? Magnolia State, Virginia, Old Dominion, no, getting kind of far from here, aren't we? Okay, um, Maryland, the Old Line State, I don't know if that's because of the Mason-Dixon line that goes through there. How about Pennsylvania? Keystone. Keystone, okay. How about New York? Empire, right, there's a building named Empire State Building, okay. Uh, Delaware? The first state. They were the first one to sign the Constitution. So they say they're the first state. Okay. Now if we go out west, it probably gets a little harder, right? How about uh, Colorado? No, it's the Centennial State. We have somebody who lived in Colorado. The Centennial State. How about uh, Alaska? Cold. Cold. Cold state. Right. It's actually the last frontier. Okay. What about California? Golden. Golden State. Okay. Uh, Hawaii? Aloha, yeah, the Aloha State. Okay, we won't go through all of them, right? But there's one I want to mention, and it's, uh, it's, uh, we have some help here this morning. What about Missouri? It's the? Show me. the Show Me State. That's one of the more interesting ones. 
the show me state. And there are different legends about how the, it became known as the show me state. One of them is uh, that their uh, house uh, representative named William Duncan Vandiver, he was on the U.S. House Committee for Naval Affairs. And he attended an 1899 banquet in Philadelphia, and he gave a speech there. And this was part of his speech. I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburrows and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have got to show me. Now, that's uh, maybe not the origin of it, but that certainly was an impulse to adopting that as the state motto. I'm from Missouri. What do you have to do? You have to show me. Well, the Galatians were not from Missouri. They were actually Celtic people. Um, but Paul has made some very bold statements. Very bold statements. And uh, if he were anticipating that sort of an attitude, he answers it today. Now, what was the statement last week? The statement was, no one can be justified before God based on obedience to the law of God. Rather, the only way to be justified, that is to be accounted as in a just, right relationship with God, the only way is through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we can hear the chorus of the Galatians saying, what? Show me. Show me. Prove it, Paul. Let me, let me show where we've been in Galatians so far. He begins by saying there's only one gospel. And then he says, I receive that gospel directly from Jesus Christ apart from the apostles in Jerusalem. And then he says, nonetheless, the apostles in Jerusalem affirmed the message when they heard what I was preaching. And then he says, because of that gospel, which says that God became man, that he obeyed in human flesh, and he was crucified, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, because of that, because of his work, we can have a right relationship with God based on faith in him and what he has done. Alone, not based on what we have done. Now, in Galatia, some people had snuck in after Paul had preached the gospel there, and they were saying, Paul didn't tell you everything. Yes, you need to have faith in Jesus Christ, but to be a real Christian, to be a first-class Christian, you need to be Jewish. You need to submit yourself, if you're a male, to circumcision. You need to follow the diet. You need to follow the calendar. So, first-class Christians, real Christians, have to follow the Jewish customs. And Paul said, absolutely not. He said, we did not yield to them for one moment. He said, the only way to be justified is through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, show me. And he says, okay, funny that you should ask, because now I'm going to show you. And he shows by three arguments. And the first argument, in verses 1 to 5 or 6, he appeals to the Galatians' own experience. He takes them back to their own experience in learning the gospel in the first place. And he asks them a series of questions. Well, first, he, he kind of takes them to task. He calls them senseless. It's translated foolish here. Foolish here. Oh, senseless Galatians. And then, kind of sarcastically, says, you, the, you have changed so radically, and, and your change is so inexplicable, your change is so outrageous, that the only thing that I can imagine is that somebody cast a spell on you. Who bewitched you? And then he reminds them 
that when he went and preached the gospel there, when he preached the gospel, he, he publicly, through his preaching, through his words, he publicly portrayed Christ as crucified. And by the way, that's what all Christian preaching should do. It should, it should present Christ as crucified and raised from the dead. And that's what Paul did in Galatia. And he says, I remember there. I remember I was there. You were there. Let's go back to that moment. And then he asks them this series of rhetorical questions. And he says, verse 1, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now the questions, this, this uh, barrage of questions to them, rhetorical questions that they, they were to answer. He says, let me ask you only this. When you received the Holy Spirit, and they had memory of receiving the Holy Spirit, we don't know how that memory was, but oftentimes when the, the, the gospel went into new places in the, in the book of Acts, there were miraculous signs. There was speaking in tongues, and there were, there were healings, and there were miraculous demonstrations of God's power. So maybe that's what they had, but it was memorable for them. It says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit... By works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Now, when the Holy Spirit came upon you, was that because you were doing such a good job in obeying the law? Of course not. They were Gentiles. They didn't even have the law. And so they had to answer, No, Paul. Actually, we received the Spirit by hearing the Gospel and believing it. And then he says, Are you so foolish? Now, given that, Are you so foolish, having been begun by the Spirit that you received by faith, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this perfected by the flesh is kind of ambiguous. It could be a reference to circumcision. It could be saying, so wait a minute, you received the Spirit by faith, and now you think you're going to be perfected by an operation in the flesh? Or it could mean by the effort of the flesh. So you receive the Spirit by faith, and you think that you started one way, and now you're going to finish in another way? By simply, by by human effort? And they say, well, no, that's not working out. It's not because of our effort. It's because of the Spirit. Next question. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And here he's talking about something that we don't really know the details of, but it looks like they suffered for becoming Christians, for believing the gospel. And he's saying, you're going to throw that all away? What was all that suffering for if you're now going to go to some other message that's not the gospel? And then in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, and so this is not just past, but in, in the present, they were experiencing amazing demonstrations of God's power. He says, does, the, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And they, they would be pushed once again to say, no, Paul, we, we really can't take credit for any of this. God just keeps doing these amazing things among us because we're believing in Him, not because we are so amazing in our uh, human effort. And then he makes this transitional statement. So he's appealed first to their their experience. And then he makes a transitional statement in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a verse from... Genesis chapter fifteen six that we already read, and this was what God said to uh, Abraham: This is what's going to happen. You are going to have a child, even though you're you're quite old. Your wife is quite old. You're going to have a child, and you will have offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. I'm going to multiply your offspring, and it says, and Abraham 
believed God and it was counted, it was accredited to him as righteousness, as right standing before God. Now, Paul quotes this here. He also quotes this in Romans chapter 4. Why is he bringing up Abraham to these Gentiles? Well, think about this. These were Gentiles. These were non-Jews. But they were trying to become Jewish. And he's saying, okay, let's go with that. You're trying to become Jewish. You really want to be children of Abraham. And that's a good thing. What was Abraham like? How did Abraham achieve status before God? You're trying to achieve status before God by following some physical ceremonial things. How did Abraham himself achieve status before God? And the answer is, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's follow his argument here. Beginning in verse 6, he quotes this scripture, Genesis 15, 6. And then he goes on, and he says, Know then, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now what Paul does here is he combines two other verses from Genesis. He combines Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 18.8. And this composite, he says, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then in the conclusion, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you want to be children of Abraham? Perfect. That's great. This is how you do it. Do what Abraham did. Believe God and it will be credited to you as righteousness. So two arguments. The first one is their, their own personal experience. How did the gospel come among you? How does the Spirit continue among you to work amazing things? And the answer is by faith. And then, how is Abraham accounted as in a right relationship with God? And the answer once again is... By faith. Then he goes to the third argument, and he continues to quote Scripture. uh, Old Testament Scripture. And what he does here is he quotes two verses that talk about two different systems. And what he does is he lays out two incompatible, mutually incompatible systems in order to gain life in order to have right standing before God. And these two incompatible systems are the incompatible systems that run through this letter. And these two incompatible systems are the two incompatible systems that run through our world as well. These two incompatible systems are reliance on the works of the law or reliance on Jesus Christ. In in verses 11 and 12... He lays it out, and he quotes here Habakkuk, a prophet from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, which looks like another one of Paul's favorite verses because he quotes it more than once, and Leviticus 18.5, which is from the law section of the Old Testament. So let's let's look at how he does this and what he does here. Uh, Verse 11, now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and here's the, the quotation from Habakkuk, The righteous shall live by faith. And then in verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather, and here's the quotation from Leviticus, The one who does them shall live 
by them. Both of these verses have to do with life. And here Paul is equating life with justification, right standing before God, eternal life, life that's real and abundant and lasting and eternal. Now, look at these two two verses. They both talk about life. Verse 11, Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. In, in Paul's use of this verse, it would probably be more clear for us to translate it like this. The righteous by faith shall live. That is to say, those who are accounted righteous by faith shall live. So Habakkuk 2.4 presents this, one, this system of being righteous before God by faith in order to live. And then verse 12 presents the other system. This is the law system. The one who, what? Does them shall live by them. So these are the two incompatible systems. You can rely on your doing, or you can rely on Christ. So those who are righteous by faith in Christ shall live, or those who do the works of the law shall live. Now, Paul says these are two systems, and they are incompatible systems. And uh, sometimes sometimes people pit Paul against Jesus, uh, as if Paul distorted things and went off on his own and went rogue uh, with his teaching. But let's go back and look at uh, Jesus talking about uh, these some of these same verses. Luke chapter 10, it's on page 962. Luke chapter 10, 962, page 962. A lawyer, and in the New Testament, a lawyer is not what we think of as a, somebody, a litigant, but it's an expert in the Old Testament law. And so it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Here he's paraphrasing Leviticus 18.15. So think about this conversation. The man comes to Jesus and says, I want to have eternal life. And he says, What should I do? So he's assuming one system, isn't he? He's assuming the system of doing. He's assuming the system of righteousness by our obedience to the law. And Jesus says, okay, if that's the system you want to work with, that's the system you're under, what's the law say? And this lawyer is actually very astute because he summarizes the law in exactly the same way that Jesus summarizes the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he nailed it. When people ask Jesus what was the essence of the law, that's what he said as well. This lawyer was very astute. And so Jesus says, you understand the law very, very well. Do it, and you'll live. That's what Leviticus says. Do it, and you'll live. But then he says, in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let's be clear about this, because you just said that I will live if I love my neighbor as myself. But I want you to delimit for me who is my neighbor, 
so that I can be sure that I can complete this. And then Jesus tells a parable, a very famous parable about the good Samaritan. And if the man understood the radical nature of that parable, he would be very depressed at the end of it because he would realize something. He would realize that he can't do it. And that's what the law does to us. The problem is not the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. It expresses what we should do. It expresses the best way for us to live. It expresses God's character. The law is good. But the problem is that we can't do it. That expert in the law couldn't do it. None of us could do it. So let's back up to a verse that I, that I, I jumped over. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law, if you're under that system of do it and you will live, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The problem isn't the law. What's the problem? We're the problem. We can't do all that the law says. And, and Paul emphasizes when he quotes this, he said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. And so if we don't do them, the law has only one answer for us. Curse and condemnation. That's the problem with that system. So theoretically, there are two systems in order to live. Theoretically, there are two ways to be righteous before God. But practically speaking, one of them is completely closed to us because we have shown time and time again that we can not do it. So, what do we get? Verse 13, and here's the relief. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and here once again he quotes Old Testament Scripture, he quotes Deuteronomy 27-26, and he says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And how did Jesus die? He was hanged on a tree. He was hanged on wood. And it says that He became a curse for us. He received that, that curse of the law for us in our place. And He says, in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the good news. This is the good news of all of Scripture. This is the good news that Paul is defending here and emphasizing. This is the good news that that we need to take to our world because our weary world is laboring even as many of us did in times past, is laboring under the system of the law in in the various religious efforts around the world. And they're laboring under this, this system of the law and they're trying and trying and trying and finding that they cannot and they will never be able to. Why? Because the law can never, any law, God's law, any law cannot save because we can't do it. But Christ took the curse of the law for us so we can be forgiven. Now, I, I want you to see something here. There is a, there's an element that Paul explains in detail elsewhere. Romans 5 particularly. One day we'll get to that. 
But let me just summarize it here because here he assumes it. He assumes that there actually is one person who did fulfill the law. He assumes that there is one person who obeyed it perfectly. And who is that person? Jesus Christ Himself. So he's assuming that we have not been able to obey the law. That's easily demonstrated. And he is also here assuming, but in other places says very explicitly, that Christ is the one who did obey the law. So what do we have? We have Christ who's perfectly obedient. He's the only one who could be right before God under the law system. So he, in himself, because of his work, is right before God as a man. And then we have the rest of us here, other humans, who can never be right before God through the system of the law. Now, justification is a double exchange. When I was a, a brand new Christian, I took part in a, an evangelization training program that many of you have taken probably, at least some of you have some of the same church background that I have. It's called Evangelism Explosion. And there's an illustration in Evangelism Explosion that goes like this. It's called the Record Book of Sin. And the idea is you grab a book off the shelf and you say, imagine that here I am and here in this book are all of my deeds, all of my thoughts and words and deeds, and, 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 and that is a barrier between me and God. But then God became man, and He didn't have any record book of sin. And then, then you are to quote from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then the, the question is now, how can I stand before God if my sin is taken away? I can be okay before God. And that's a wonderful illustration. Receive it and believe it. But it's actually only half. It's only half of the good news. Only half of what happens. It gets even better than this. And I don't have any books here other than my Bible, but I have a couple of very simple sheets. Let's just summarize it with one word. Our book. What do we have? Sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. And now we have what Christ has in and of Himself. What is He? The righteousness of God. He's completed it. There's another verse that brings out the double exchange. Isaiah 53.6 brings out the transition of our sin to Christ, but it doesn't bring out the other direction. There's another verse that Paul says, He who knew no sin. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin for us became sin. That's what Isaiah emphasizes, that our sin was passed to Him on the cross. That's why He was accursed on the cross of Calvary. That's why He received the curse of the law, because He took our sin upon it. But that verse continues, He who had no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, it's even better than forgiveness. This direction is forgiveness. Christ takes away our sins so that we can be completely forgiven therefrom. But He doesn't just take away from us. He gives to us. And this is the emphasis here. That we can be righteous before God. Why? 
because we have a perfect righteousness before God, if we have received a perfect righteousness from Jesus Christ, the only one who was able to fulfill the law perfectly. Is that clear? Because it it was clear to the Galatians at the beginning, but then it became fuzzy. And so I don't want it to become fuzzy ever for us. I don't want us ever to, to forget the glorious nature of this double transaction. Christ taking away our sin, giving to us His righteousness that we receive by faith in Christ alone. These are the two systems, but there is only one that can possibly work for us. When we think about faith, we need to be careful. Because I think I thought about it this way when I was first a Christian. I used to think about it like this, and I think many people think about it like this. Well, the law was too hard. We showed that we couldn't do it. So what God did is He just lowered the bar for us. And He gave us something that we could come up with, our faith. That's how I kind of looked at it, that that He had lowered the bar and now it's a bar that I can get over. But if that's the case, I still have something to boast about, don't I? Now I'm saying, well, I couldn't get over that one, but I could get over this lower one. Watch me. See what I did? I can get over and that's why I'm in. But you see, faith is the instrument of receiving righteousness because faith doesn't have anything to boast about. Faith is resting in someone else. Faith is trusting in someone else. And so if anybody deserves credit, it is the one in whom we're trusting. It is the one in whom we're resting. Some of you probably recall it's actually still active, although the dad is not active anymore because he's in his upper 70s. But there is a team called Team Hoyt. They're both named Richard. Richard Sr. goes by Dick. Richard Jr. goes by Rick. And when Rick, the son, was 15, he said, Dad, could we run in a 5K race? Because I heard about somebody who is trying to raise money because this person has become uh, disabled and needs some money. And could we run in a 5K race together? to raise some money for this person. And his dad was not a runner. And so his dad was already middle-aged and he was, he was not a runner. But he said, sure, son, we can run in that race. We'll do it together. Now, there's something we need to understand about Rick. Rick has cerebral palsy. And Rick cannot walk and he cannot talk. And so by asking to run in this race together, he was saying, Dad, can you push me or pull me? these five kilometers. And so his dad got some sort of a, a running chair or jogger or something. And his, his son, who could not walk or talk, much less run, he pushed him through these five kilometers and they came in second to last, but they finished the race. But this idea got into their head that they could do this together. And so they started entering other races and duathlons and triathlons, and marathons, and Ironman competitions. Do you know what those are? It's two point something miles of swimming. It's over a hundred kilometers or miles of biking. And it's a full marathon. And they did six of them. He has a boat, 
and he puts his son in the boat and he ties him the boat to his vest and he swims those miles. And, and then he gets on the bike and originally they had a two-seater bike, then they developed a, a, a cart that would work for both pushing and the running and then attaching to the bike and he, he does the biking part of it and then runs the race pushing his son. They've done over 1,100 races together. They're known, known as Team Hoyt. And the son is still racing, but the father, because of his, his age, isn't able to do as much. The last Boston Marathon they did was in 2014. Now, lots of, lots of lessons, I suppose, we could learn from Team Hoyt. But when we think about that, we probably think about ourselves, particularly those of us who are parents, we think about ourselves in the place of the father, don't we? What we would love to do for our children, no matter what condition we, we, we push them through, we, we help them, we carry them, we do whatever they need. But before God, that's not the position we're in. We're in the position not of Dick the father, but Rick the son. What does he do? During the swimming, during the biking, during the running, he rests, he trusts. And he wins the victory because his father gets him across the finish line. That's the lesson for us. What do we have to contribute? Nothing but our sin. What do we receive? Forgiveness of all our sin and righteousness before God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for putting things so clearly before us. How we like to boast in what we've done. But we find ourselves always falling short. Your law calls us up short. And we thank You for the clarity of this message that pushes us once again to one option and only one option. And that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. I pray for all of us, O God. If any of us here do not have that faith, I pray that You would grant that faith, O God, today. That we might cease trusting in anything else, in ourselves or anything else, and trust in Christ alone. Because He is the one who obeyed perfectly. He is the one who received the curse of the law. And I pray for those of us who have, like the Galatians, begun, begun through faith in Jesus Christ, that we would continue the rest of our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we know that the way we began is the way we must continue and the way we must end to cross that finish line, being carried by You and trusting in Christ alone. And we pray in His name. Amen.